We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Do you have trouble putting yourself first? Is saying no almost impossible because you can't risk disappointing people? Does this mean you end up giving until it hurts? My witness today is Michelle Farris, a licensed psychotherapist and specialist in codependency based in California, USA. She loves helping codependent people create healthy relationships, without sacrificing their big hearts. She's written several ebooks and created various online courses. There'll be details of those in our show notes. I've invited Michelle onto the podcast for a variety of reasons. Codependency is a term that comes from addiction work, and I've been wondering if it's helpful for other situations like recovering from infidelity. So I'm looking forward to taking a deep dive into the topic with her. In addition, I think it's harder to have a meaningful life if it revolves around trying to manage or change someone else's behaviour. So, Michelle, welcome to The Meaningful Life. I think we'd better start at the very beginning. What is codependency? Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. This is going to be a real treat. Uh, So, codependency is really a relationship pattern where we overly focus on helping, rescuing or controlling people, places and things. So we end up losing ourselves in other people rather than knowing how to have a good, solid foundation of self-worth and self-esteem within ourselves. And how widespread do you think this is? Oh, I think it's really widespread. Most people see the list of symptoms, which is quite great, and relate to at least a few. I think that's why people miss it, because they may look at people-pleasing or controlling behaviors and not relate, but then they might relate to using their job as their only source of self-worth. So there's so many that people can have codependent behaviors in varying degrees. So don't worry, we're going to go slowly over the seven signs that Michelle has helpfully uh, given me to work on. So if this is something you think, hmm, I wonder if this has got anything in it for me, you will probably have a good answer by the end of the uh, podcast. So how did you actually get into specialising this area, Michelle? You know, I always felt like I related to codependency even as a kid. I didn't know how to make friends really well, so I tried to give gifts. And I just always related to it. So when I went into the field, I really loved the idea of studying codependency because I wanted to get better. Right. And and in what way did you have a problem? For sure, I didn't know how to esteem myself. So I looked to my friendships for that. And, you know, that's a really hard way to do it. And I saw other kids on the playground or, you know, in high school as I grew up, they knew how to esteem themselves. They felt good, at least on the outside. And I just didn't know how to do that. And I think that that's a really common issue, especially in childhood, where if you don't know how to esteem yourself because your parents didn't know how to do that for you or teach you how to do it, then you learn how to get your value through unhealthy means like addiction or people pleasing or denying who you are to be liked. And, you know, those typically don't work very well. 
And one of the reasons parents don't teach their children how to esteem themselves is possibly because they're too wrapped up in their own stuff. And if there's addiction in the family, yeah. that tends to occupy a lot of time in the family. Was there addiction in your family when you were a child? Yeah, my dad was the alcoholic. But I think it was honestly, it wasn't so much the drinking that caused it. It was more the not having the skills to know how to make friends, to have my feelings honored. Because back in the early 70s, you know, parents were about going to work, coming home, doing the deal. There wasn't a lot around emotional development. So to be fair, a lot of parents back then didn't see it as a need. And there was a lot of stigma still attached to therapy and emotional issues. So they didn't think to spend time teaching their children that. And they probably didn't have those skills themselves. So how could they turn around and teach us? Yeah, but I think when I looked in my family, I discovered a huge amount of the material and how to actually be went back to not my grandmother, but my great grandfather, the mm. way that he set the pattern for the rest of the family sort of filtered through. And that sort of message mm. was, don't talk about things. Yes. Funny I became a podcast host. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you broke through that barrier. I wonder how that happens. Uh, that's awesome, though. I love that. So let's actually start looking at how we can spot if we might be codependent. So let's have the first one. A codependent self-esteem is based on what they do, not who they are. Now, that's really powerful. Can you unpack that mm -hmm. for me? Sure. So as kids, codependent children, they don't know how to get their values. So they learn to either be helpful in some way or take care of others in some way. And in both of those things, they tend to neglect themselves. So as adults, they learn to look at how can I get my worth through other people rather than through feeling good about myself, figuring out what I want and need. They don't know how to do that. So it becomes if I'm in a relationship, I'm a good person. If I'm the star volunteer at church, I have value. If I get a good job and keep it, I'm a good person. So it's all based on what I'm doing versus who I am. And the danger, of course, is, is when you lose that job, you crash emotionally instead of realizing that there's another job around the corner and it has nothing to do with your value, but codependents make their value about what they're doing, not who they are. And how other people feel about them as well. Definitely. Definitely. They don't know how they feel about themselves because they weren't taught to go inward. So it's all about what you think of me. Which is really rather scary, isn't it? Because you yeah. know, we've just met each other. So you know, right. I, exactly. I don't want all of that responsibility. But I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly. But you know, if your husband or your wife thinks you're a good person, we're all good to go. If they think you're bad, right. then you're terrible and you must actually work doubly hard to try and turn it round. No wonder it can be exhausting. Yeah. Well, they learn to take the emotional temperature of the room growing up and they know as a child who's upset, what's going on. But the problem is, is because in dysfunctional homes, parents don't typically take responsibility for their feelings. The child ends up personalizing that experience thinking, 
I'm doing something wrong. They must be mad at me because they're so unhappy or they're so angry. And that just fuels their addiction to approval because they want to try to stay safe. So codependent people don't know what they need or want. That's Mm. the second sign. So explain that to me. Yeah. Well, because they're other focused, they are much more concerned and they're actually great at identifying what others need. That's one of their gifts, actually. But because they're so hyper-focused on what other people need or what the situation calls for, they're not spending any time doing that for themselves because it's too scary to go inward. So their whole life is based on what's in front of them. So they really don't know what they need because they're much more focused on what others need. And I see this a lot. Codependents lose themselves in relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they can become a chameleon because in every situation, if they feel like, okay, what's needed here? If this group likes me bubbly, I'm going to be bubbly. But if this group likes me quiet, I might be quiet because that's that skill of taking the emotional temperature of the room. But the problem is, is that you're changing yourself in every situation, hoping to be liked and loved. And it doesn't really work because it's very confusing for you and it makes a lot of stress because imagine changing yourself in every situation. I mean, that's that's just a really hard way to live. Or if your partner is forever mm-hmm. changing because, you know, one minute they're right. all nice and the next minute they lose their temper and you're frantically changing from one personality to the other, maybe on a sixpence almost. Right. Well, and that brings up a good point is that when our partner or our significant other or our family member has a bad day, we take it on as our responsibility instead of seeing it as, oh, they're just having a bad day. Because when you glob onto somebody else's bad day as your own, that creates a lot of internal stress as well. And that's how we lose ourselves because we feel this over-responsibility for other people instead of just realizing that we really only can control and take responsibility for ourselves. Now, I hear all of that and, I, and I'm 100% with you, but I have clients who would say, well, you know, if you are a nice person, of course you want to make your partner feel better after a bad yes. day. Yes. Now, where does that sort of perfectly natural sort of thing of, oh, we'll try and cheer my wife or my husband up, Right. where does that end and being codependent begin? Well, I think there's nothing wrong, like you said, with trying to be supportive of your spouse if they've had a bad day. But that's different than taking responsibility for it. If I say to my husband, you know, what do you need? Wow, it sounds like you had a really tough day. And I'm listening to him and I'm giving support. That's great. But if his mood still doesn't change, that's where I have to tell myself, you know what, Michelle, this isn't my problem. I'm doing what I can to be supportive, but that's it. I have to be able to cut that responsibility that it's not all about me. It's really about him. And that's a boundary issue. And actually, I think that's very good. It's about supporting rather than rescuing. Yes. And you just mentioned another word that is really important when it comes to codependency is boundaries. And that brings (laughs) us through to point number four, codependent people can't say no or set boundaries. Now, this is the real crunch point, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they're people pleasers. And when we say yes constantly, 
it can backfire because we wipe ourselves out and codependent people want so much to please other people that when they're asked to help out, they feel like this is my chance to shine. So I have to say yes, because my self-worth is tied up in that versus, you know what? I'm just too tired today. I can't do that for you. They feel so much responsibility for what's happening that they don't allow themselves to do that. Now, what I see with boundary issues, and I don't know if this is the same with codependency, is either when things are going badly, I would lower my boundaries and allow you to behave even worse, or I would throw a wobbly and would say, that's it, I've had enough of you, I'm leaving, I'm going to go to my mother's. So Uh it's either sort of reduce the boundaries altogether or put up such a high one that, you know, we're going to be living in different time zones within five minutes' time. Is that something that fits in with codependency? Yes. They can either have walls or they have no boundaries at all. The other thing with boundaries is that sometimes when they say yes and they mean no, they are leaking out resentment and sarcasm and guilt trip comments because they can't contain it anymore. So they're they're still trying to be liked by saying yes, but eventually you'll see the codependent start to dissolve into very undermining comments, maybe said quietly, but they have to leak out somewhere because when you've done this for years and years and years, you know, it's really hard to keep up long term. Here's a good codependent leak out. <sighs> Yes. Well, I said I would do that for you, <laughs> but the tone is sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Because tone is almost more important than actually what you say. Yeah. So boundaries is such an important topic. I have a, an entire podcast mm. on that subject. So look in the list. It's called boundaries. Oh, that sounds great. So codependent people attract difficult people. I wonder how that could possibly happen. <laughs> well, it makes them feel needed. So if they attract somebody who has a lot of problems, who tends to be alcoholic or narcissistic, they have a lot to work with. And it also distracts them against their own pain because the codependent on the outside looks really good. They're overperforming, they're huge volunteers, they're hyper-responsible, but they don't know what to do. So they get into these relationships where they save people because that's where they feel needed. And the problem is, is that these are really dysfunctional relationships because, you know, if you're trying to fix somebody who's drinking alcoholically, that's a long road and you're not going to be successful. But they see the potential in the other person as they could be this lovely person, but they're really not seeing reality of who they are. Oh, I've heard the phrase, I fell in love with your potential. Oh, yes. Oops. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I think the whole dating thing, and this could be with friendship too, not just romantic relationships. You really have to interview the person for a while to see whether or not they're a good fit instead of the codependent just jumps right in because they want to connect so badly that they tend to dismiss those red flags that are happening. Yes. I was once asked by a journalist about why her boyfriend wouldn't commit. And, you know, I said, well, tell me a few things about him, et cetera, Uh et cetera. And, you know, along the various things she said, oh, he's a heroin addict as well. And you thought, 
Mm, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what's heartbreaking is that the codependent does not see that as a major red flag to say, hey, maybe we need to pause here or not put all our energy into this person. That's unfortunately common. And so what you're saying is that codependent people possibly commit too soon. Then point number six is people who are codependent have a hard time letting go. Yeah, well, because they didn't learn how to be connected growing up, they typically their connections at home are fragmented or, you know, they get some connection in order to survive, but they don't learn healthy connections. So they tend to grow up feeling emotionally starved for that attention. So in their mind, if they can stay connected to somebody and not leave no matter what, even if they're being mistreated, it's better than being alone because being alone is where the pain is. Because actually, you know, if you're fighting or you're in terrible pain, you are in a bizarre kind of way connected to these people, aren't you? Well, and it's a distraction from your own pain that's right there. Because if you can complain about your relationship, that's the easier issue than complaining about, oh my God, I don't know who I am. You know, that can be a much bigger fish to fry. And at the time, it feels like there is a solution. Oh, we'll get back together again. We'll try harder. Whereas actually trying to sort out why you're codependent and unpacking all of your pain, well, that's that's at least a year's work or, you know, maybe a lifetime's work. So, you know, let's get on the phone and let's sort of beg to come back again or threaten to try and get them to come back again or whatever. I can understand why it's really difficult to let go but it's actually very destructive as well. So how do you know when is the right time to let go of a codependent relationship? Well, you know, if you're really codependent, you're not going to let go. They will end up letting go of you. And then the codependent hits bottom because often that's what leads them into recovery is that they don't leave the relationship. The other person feels so smothered that they finally say, I'm out because the codependent Again, they will stay being mistreated because they think that is easier and safer than being by themselves. And our seventh one is codependents tend to expect perfection from themselves and others. Ah, oh, this one's a hard one too. Uh, I think part of what happens with when you're codependent is that you don't have a tolerance for making mistakes. And, you know, honestly, I think most people grow up in an environment where they aren't taught how to handle mistakes well. But with codependency, they really don't know because they're trying to scramble to find their value. And if they've been abused around making a mistake, they are going to do whatever they possibly can to be perfect and be the straight A student and the one that looks wonderful on the outside, but is hurting on the inside. So... The reason why this translates into their relationships is because they tend to have unrealistic expectations where they're in that hope of the dream of, oh, this relationship is going to save me from my family or, you know, save me in life, that they don't really know how to admit to, you know what, maybe I picked wrong or maybe I'm not doing everything perfect and that's okay. They don't understand what realistic expectations really can be and how freeing it can be to just admit, yeah, you know what, maybe this relationship isn't working for me. 
And I think that often working harder at something has generally worked well for them in the past. You know, particularly right. at school, if right. you work harder, then you will probably become an A grade student. At work, yes. if you work harder, yep. there is a chance you will be rewarded and you will go up. But, right. you know, however hard you work with an alcoholic or a heroin addict or whatever, it doesn't work in the same way as school and work. It's something entirely different. So the perfectionism, it might work somewhere else, but it doesn't work here. No, because we can't control what the other person's going to do. And as much as we can try to have that relationship work out, ultimately, we only have 50% control and responsibility over the outcome. And that's what the codependent doesn't want to hear. Mm. So let me go back through the seven signs. A codependent self-esteem is based on what they do, not who they are. Codependent people don't know what they need or want. Codependents lose themselves in relationships. Codependent people can't say no or set boundaries. Codependent people attract difficult people. People who are codependents have a hard time letting go of people. Codependents tend to expect perfection from themselves and others. Now, how many do we need to have said yes to, to uh, consider ourselves codependent? You know, because that isn't, I mean, there's so many more symptoms too. Those are main ones. It's not so much how many you relate to, it's is it hurting you in your life and in your relationships? That's really the sign whether or not you need help. Because if you're doing everything else, but you're not setting boundaries, that's a big enough one that you're going to probably relate to some aspect of codependency. But that's the other thing is sometimes people only see themselves in one or two things until they sort of dive into what codependency is. And then they start to connect the dots and say, oh, maybe I am more than one. Because typically people relate to more than one, but there's no real, I wouldn't say three or more in your codependent, because like I said, it happens in varying degrees. It's more whether or not it's an issue for you in your life and causing pain. Now, is this just for substance abuses or can it be part of a wider picture? Oh, definitely. I think substance abuse is how it came to light, but it's also how you grew up. If you grew up in any type of dysfunction or abuse, codependent patterns tend to be learned as coping skills that help us survive as kids. But then as adults, they tend to play havoc in our relationships and self-esteem. So absolutely, it's not just, you know, you could have had a parent who was rageful or depressed and they didn't have the ability to parent you effectively. So you had to learn codependent tendencies in order to survive. So absolutely, you can have it without addiction. Because you didn't have addiction yourself. You had sort of codependent with friends. So tell mm -hmm. me about that. Well, I tried to get really creative in how to be friends with people. So I, like I said, would give gifts or try to be liked and figure out how that worked. But it was really exhausting. So in my relationships with women, my friendships, I mean, women's friendships run deep anyway. Yes. Which is lovely. But I was looking at my friends too much to validate who I was and like me instead of realizing that, you know what, I can't put all my emotional eggs in one person's basket because they get too overwhelmed by that and it's not good for me. So I had to learn the hard way about a few friendships that crashed and burned over the years that I realized I can never give myself away like that. 
because it's too painful. And it's so much better to have a sense of self and to really work recovery so that you feel like you are a whole person and then you can have a relationship with somebody else versus I need you in order to feel good because, you know, that never ends well. (laughs) Can you give us a story that we could relate to that would help us realize, you know, your sort of ding ding sort of kind of moment? Oh, yeah. I think about, it wasn't that long ago. I've had different friendships end over the years, but I had one in particular and I thought it was really healthy and I didn't realize that I was still giving her more power than I realized and I didn't know it until she ended the friendship. And how would you give her more power than... Because I was, how would I say that? I think I looked forward to our chats. We chatted, I don't know, three, four times a week. But it was the dependency that I didn't recognize again. It was that, oh, I can't wait to talk to this person, but it was too much. Now I know the feeling really well because it's like now I like somebody, I love my women friends, but I don't need them. And I needed her in a more intense way that I missed. And that's the other thing with codependency is that you're going to learn the same lesson again and again and again. And this one, though, was big. And I realized that the pain was so great when we, quote, broke up, because <laughs> that's what it felt like. Explain to me the crash and burn then, so we can recognize that. So normally in a relationship, when a relationship ends, you feel sad, you feel grief, you go through yeah. that process. For me, it was much more intense. It was, it was devastating. And it took me several months to really, I mean, of course I functioned in my life. I was able to work. I was able to do what I needed to do, but emotionally I was so off center and I didn't realize how much I had depended on her until afterwards. So it was a real wake up call for me to realize in my own codependency recovery that I have to be very, very mindful. And I had to cultivate a relationship with myself in a much deeper way than I had ever needed before. And that was actually the gift that came out of that was that now I have a much stronger foundation. So I'm not going to set myself up to be in that kind of relationship again. So how did you sort of have a better relationship with yourself then? Because that seems to be the key of all of this, isn't it? I had to spend time alone. I had to grieve. I had to unwind from that dependent relationship. And that's what codependent people don't want to do. And I let myself grieve for a good year where I didn't start another friendship. I didn't try to replace the person. I just went into my own pain. And I had to learn to rely on myself rather than constantly picking up the phone and getting support from my women friends because that wasn't working anymore. I needed myself. I needed my relationship with my higher power. I needed my program. All of those things had to be prioritized over getting connected to women friends. And how do you cope with your pain? You know, you sort of, it trips nicely off the tongue, but it sounds like hell on earth. I cried a lot. And I wrote in my journal, but I knew that that was what I needed to do because I knew what I did. I had become too dependent. So without that awareness, I probably would have done the same thing again, but you know, it wasn't something I needed to do. Yeah. 
And I suppose one of the things that if somebody is actually doing the crash and burn at the moment, you have to realise is we're probably not just having the crash and burn from this friendship. You've got the ones that came before all the way back to that childhood thing where you were buying sweets for people. That's an awful lot of pain to process, isn't it? Right. And that's why I had to take the year to really go through that. And that's why I always recommend 12-step programs for people going through codependency, because this isn't something you can do by yourself. You really need a group of people who are cheering you on and helping you recover. So how do you find these groups? What names do they have? So the more predominant program is Al-Anon, and it's alanon.org, I believe. A lot of the meetings are on Zoom. And then Codependency Anonymous, which is CODA, they are another program. They're probably about 30 years old. So they're both very trenched in codependency and healing from those behaviours. And if you haven't got alcohol in the picture, Mm -hmm. will you Mm -hmm. still be welcomed at alcoholic codependency groups? They're not going to kick you out. (laughs) Even though, yes, in Al-Anon, it does say these programs are for friends and families of alcoholics. They will say that. But If you're wanting to get your feet wet, it's perfectly fine to go because most of us have some addiction in our family tree anyway. But again, they're never going to ask you for your, you know, your addiction family card (laughs) as proof. (laughs) That's not going to happen. They'll welcome you because they want you to heal like they did. Now, often people start thinking about codependency after a infidelity, perhaps a really Mm. nasty infidelity, one of those ones where it's not a case that the man or the woman thinks, oh my God, what have I done? And let's try and make things better. They're often sort of, well, I want to stay and work with you, but I still want to be friends with the other woman, the other man. And they sort of flip-flop backwards and forwards. And, you know, this can go on for a couple of years. And It often feels to me on the outside like there might be some sort of codependency here. Do you think that this fits into this pattern as well? I do, because if the spouse of the person who is waffling in the affair doesn't know what they need, doesn't feel like they can set their boundaries and say, you know what, I'm not willing to continue this relationship unless you're willing to go to therapy with me and completely cut off the relationship that's going to make it really hard. But the codependent person is going to waffle and say, well, maybe they'll change and they'll wait and they'll wait. And, you know, that's really hard because most people have non-negotiables in relationship, but the codependent is not going to necessarily trust themselves enough to see that, oh, you know what, this behavior really isn't okay. So it takes them longer to see that, you know what, it really is okay to take care of yourself and figure out what's best for you. Even if you've got children? Well, that's why whether you're codependent or not, this is a huge decision to make. So codependents are just going to be that much more tortured by the decision-making process because they're not going to trust themselves. But of course, it's going to be hard to make that decision having children because it breaks a family up and it changes your entire life. So either way, this is not an easy decision to make, but codependents are going to have a lot more difficulty honoring their own experience in that marriage. 
Now, your other area of speciality, as well as codependency, is anger. And I think I'm going to find out that anger and codependency go together. Is that correct? They do. Typically, a codependent will stuff their anger because they want to look good, but then it leaks out in two ways. They'll either eventually explode, but it's rare because, you know, again, they're going to hold on to all those feelings for years. And then one day, they can't control it and it all comes out or they, that's right. (laughs) Or they do passive aggressive anger. So they might say, well, of course I am going to help you. Don't I always, but it's, you know, it's got that bite to it. So they're going to say yes, but eventually it's going to leak out in those passive aggressive snarly tones because they can't contain it anymore. So I think we're saying that it's really important to have good self-care, that this is the cornerstone of recovery. Because, and I'm going to quote you here, so please expand on this quote, relationships change when we become willing to look at ourselves. Yeah, that's the hardest part when you're codependent, because you have to take the focus off of what other people are doing and look at yourself. Are you taking care of yourself, especially emotionally? Now, physically, They can neglect themselves too by running themselves ragged and helping other people out so they're not taking care of themselves physically. But emotionally, it's really important too because again, I don't want them to put all their emotional eggs in one person's basket. I want them to be able to take care of themselves, have a relationship with themselves and get love and support in their life, but not to the point where they're becoming overly dependent on any one or more people. And I think looking at ourselves is looking back into the past as well. You know, who are the difficult people that we were managing in the past? And that's sometimes really difficult to do because it can feel like running down your mother or your father or your younger sibling or something like that. Right. Well, our present relationships tend to trigger the past and that's where the pain is, but that's also where the gift is. Because when you can start making those connections, you can start to heal and change those patterns. I love that. The pain is where the gift is. So let's have five self-care tips for us. Well, one, I love having people create a ritual where they do every day, even if it's five or 10 minutes. You know, some people don't have a lot of time, but something that you can look forward to where you're centering yourself, you might be reading a couple of inspirational books or quotes, something to kind of center yourself in the day. I love the idea of taking time for yourself. And if you're living in a family, to ask for some alone time in your home. A lot of women don't get that. A lot of men don't get that. So asking for time alone so you can start to be with yourself and just relax. And instead of cleaning the house, maybe you're just doing something that you want to do. Other parts of self-care for me are belonging to a community that you love or a 12-step group that you love, some place where you feel like seen and heard. Because I think sometimes we really need that aspect, especially when things are difficult, like the last year and a half in the pandemic. You know, those people who had groups and places to go for support functioned better and survived better because they weren't isolated. So I think I'll I'll give you one. I think touch is really important. We are not touched enough. Mm, uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So how might we get more touch? 
I love that. Well, I think if you live alone, because I tend to think of the people who live alone first, is, you know, a lot of them can have pets and that can be incredibly helpful. Also, you know, hugging your kids, hugging your mom, hugging your mate, doing just little touches throughout the day. Some of that may need to be negotiated depending on what your love language is and what their love language is. Like, for instance, if your partner isn't a hugger and you are, sometimes what I recommend is buy one of those really big stuffed bears and hug them Mm. so that you have the ability to get that for yourself, even if your husband or wife or partner doesn't really want to do that. So, you know, you can get creative. And you can always sort of book yourself a massage or a a day of pampering in a spa or something like that. Absolutely. So we need one more self-care tip. You know, I think exercise is so key Mm. because it gets the stress out of our body, walking outside, getting in the fresh air. I think there's just something really, really grounding about that. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to do it every day. But even two or three times a week, take a 20-minute walk can really help a lot. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a member of our supporters circle is not only will you have my eternal gratitude, but you get a chance to write in. By the way, there's also more benefits at the higher level. So look at the website for details of that. And here's a letter that I'm going to discuss with Michelle. It's been a year since I discovered my husband of five years was having an inappropriate friendship. He told me he loved me, but was not in love anymore but was willing to give our relationship another go. He said he would break contact with her. I spent the next few months giving our relationship 100%, learning from books, trying to understand his perspective, and listen fully. I also made sure I was stating clearly what I wanted, i.e. a full committed relationship with him and more input into me and family time. We have a three-year-old son. In late autumn, I discovered he'd gone away with his friend for a couple of days saying he was away for work. I was devastated yet again. He said he should leave and I agreed, although I asked him to stop, take stock and consider everything so he could make some suitable arrangements. He still sleeps on the sofa and there is no relationship other than a functional one around the family life for four months now. I thought he was having second thoughts as he's been initiating family time for us. However, when we talk, he deflects any decisions. He won't attend counselling with me or alone, although I have undertaken some. I've given this so much time and effort as I love him and we have a son. I can't understand his inability to either choose a direction or commit to exploring how he feels through counselling. I've got to the point I feel run down, emotionally exhausted and ambivalent. I feel upset about the situation, angry with his behaviour and upset that it may be left to me to ask him to leave because he won't stay properly or leave. I want more from life, and I'm going to get it. I'm not a quitter, but I don't want to waste my time over someone who isn't there for me. So what was your thoughts when you listened to this letter, Michelle? Well, it sounds like she's coming into her truth, as painful as that is. 
And, you know, I, I can really relate to her saying that she's trying everything she can, but she's running up against a wall and he is not doing what she'd like him to do, which is really participate in healing the marriage. So, you know, she's left with that painful choice of what do I do now based on really what I hear is that she's done everything she can do. She is trying to make the marriage better. She is trying to take care of herself. She's getting some of her own therapy, which I'm really glad about. But, you know, she's left with that reality that he is not participating in their marriage and is not being honest still. And that's a really painful truth. So she gets, unfortunately, to decide, you know, what she's going to do now, whether she stays or whether she truly decides that she wants something better and to leave. Because it's been said a thousand times in a thousand different places, the only person you can change is yourself. Right. Now, why is that right. so difficult? I mean, I can see why it's so difficult yeah. here, but yeah. let's dive into why is it so difficult to give up trying to change other people? Because let's face it, we mm. spent more than half our lives trying to change other people. If only right. they would do this, if only they would do that. People arrive in my counselling room with a hundred ways their partner could change and probably only one or two about the ways that they could change, which is normally give up. Right or just stuff the stuff down. Those are the only two things they could change. I could stuff it better down or I could leave. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more that she can do here than just stuff it down or leave. Mm -hmm. What else could she do? Well, it depends what choice she makes. If she decides to stay, she can decide to create her own life, get her own support, and see the marriage as something less than what she wants but something where there is a connection and she can keep her family intact with realistic expectations, which means that, yeah, she isn't going to get all of her needs met and she may need to rely more on outside friendship to get her needs met rather than the marriage, you know? And if you're going to do that, you can't let all of the anger leak around the edges. You really do have to work on the anger in your own personal therapy, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be able eventually after the grieving process to accept what is, you know, this is my marriage. This is what it is. And I am choosing to stay for my child or I am choosing to stay, you know, for myself and my child. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, yeah, I think coming to a place where you finally accept that this is what is. And what I like to say is, you know, treat your partner light and polite you know you're you're kind you're polite but you're also not asking for a lot because you're not setting yourself up to be hurt again so you're very mindful of what you're willing to ask for and what you're not willing to ask for based on what's happened and what your comfort level is and if you want to leave can you still use the light and polite method as well? Absolutely. Because if you leave, that's when it's even more important because, you know, there is such a thing as amicable divorce. You don't have to end a marriage and go to war. You can be amicable about it and continue the friendship because let's face it, you are going to be in each other's life if you have a child for several years. So you may as well make it amicable. And that takes effort on both people's parts. But 
even one person can commit to being kind and not drag the other person into the mud. I don't think we need to go quite as far as being kind. I think light and polite is... (laughs) Well, kind in terms of like you would a stranger. You know, you're saying please, you're saying thank you. You're being kind, but you're right. Not to the level that you would a close dear friend, for sure. Uh, Because it's incredibly difficult to be light and polite if he's left you for somebody else. Right. Well, and that's why at first you may need to fake it until you make it. Because again, especially if you have a little child witnessing this, you don't want them to be in the middle of the war. So if you can be light and polite, you're going to cut down the tension in the home and that's going to help a lot. So Michelle, thank you very much for talking to us about codependency. Is there anything that you think that we should mention that we haven't covered on the subject? You know, the one thing I would say is about the recovery process. So for me, there's three aspects of recovery and they tend to all happen simultaneously, which is why it can be challenging and people don't often realize the depth of it. But the first part is really taking that focus off of other people, back onto yourself, prioritizing your self-care. The second is learning relationship skills like boundaries, communication, being able to assess the quality of your relationships, which is important. And then the third aspect is doing the family of origin work, which is the deep dive into childhood and where these patterns come from. So when you look at codependency recovery, those are the major tasks that are involved, but you don't have to do them all at once. It just tends to be like for me in my own recovery, I'm not only working on one thing. There's usually more than one thing that's happening because codependency impacts so many areas. But I'm going to give those three things again. The first one is take the focus of other people. And I think mm-hmm. if if people come away with just one idea from yeah. this podcast, that's the one. Take the focus right. of other people, put it on yourself because mm-hmm. you're worth it. And then mm-hmm. learn the relationship skills. And I think if we're going to choose one relationship skill, we're going to choose boundaries, I think, is because those two go hand in hand, yeah. putting the focus on yourself and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And then the family of origin. And I think it's actually really rather comforting. You say we don't have to do these all at the same time. That's right. You know, if you've been doing those two, the family of origin, you know, you could possibly leave that for a little bit. That's right. Have a look at it, think, oh, yes, that makes sense. But actually, unpacking all of that stuff can be really painful. And you might not want to do that while he's off on a date with the other woman, sort of kind of moment. That might be the time to be doing the self care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. So, thank you very much for being my guest and my witness today on The Meaningful Life. As my witness, I have to ask you what makes your life meaningful? Definitely when I get the chance to help someone else in terms of their own process of recovery. I had one of my subscribers the other day for my email list. We actually had a quick phone call and uh, it was really lovely. It was lovely to talk to another person in recovery and just give that person some hope. Sometimes you get random people You know, it could be a distant family member or someone that just needs a little bit of encouragement. And I just love doing that because it really feeds me. So that's what makes me happy. And what's the difference between helping other people 
and being focused on them and codependent because it feels quite like a slippery slope there, I have to say. Yeah, well, without boundaries, absolutely. Like, for instance, the call that I had yesterday, it took us a little while to figure out when because there were times when it didn't work for me. So instead, if I wasn't in recovery, I would have taken the call immediately even though it wasn't convenient for me and it wasn't a good time. We negotiated on when would work for both of us and it was great because I gave because I wanted to give, not because I had to give. I gave because I wanted to give rather than I had to give. Yeah. Yeah. I now see the difference. And we're back to those wonderful boundaries again. Yeah, So that's right. I think as soon as you finish this podcast, go and look at the one on boundaries. Yes. <laughs> A two for one special today. So, Michelle, thank you very much. Now, unfortunately, unless you're a member of our supporters circle, this is where the conversation ends. But if you want to find out how to get the rest of the conversation where Michelle and I are going to unpack this and think about what she's learned and what I've learned and the three things that deep down Michelle knows to be true, well, here's the details. Please join us in the supporter circle. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.